1: Welcome to the cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got recorded stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. Joining me from the thickets and brambles of storied Goldcorn holler out there in Middle Tennessee is also known as Jeremy Goldcorn, who is taking time away from his balloon and drone launch center that he's built on his property, uh, where this very afternoon he plans on setting up a fifth craft, this time shaped (laughs) like a giant alpaca or a grass mud horse, uh, which he's hoping will be taken down by an F-22. You've done pretty well so far. I think you're four for four. Uh, Tell us how many of your vehicles have already been
0: down exactly. <laughs> no, no, none of them. None of them, Kaiser. Uh, as uh, somebody oh, from on. the, uh, I think the State Department said yesterday, n- none of these things were extra, uh, extraterrestrial uh, craft. So that rules mine out. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right.
1: But do greet the people. Hello, people. Um, I hope at least they were electric powered. Absolutely. Okay, no, good, because we're talking all about electric vehicles and the batteries that power them today. We are pleased to be joined by Henry Sanderson, a former reporter for the AP, and for Bloomberg, who now serves as executive editor for Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, which is a provider of data and analysis for the lithium-ion battery supply chain.
0: Henry worked for many years in China and is a leading expert on electric vehicles and the batteries that power them. He's the author of the fantastic 2022 book, Volt Rush: The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green, a book that reminds us of the very ugly fact that the metals that are needed to make electric vehicle batteries need to be dug out of the earth and processed in ways that are anything but environmentally friendly. Uh, Henry, I've talked to you a few times before, and it's a delight to welcome you to Seneca. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, Henry, great to have you on at last.
0: Thank you. Henry, could we start with some numbers? Could you give us a sense of just how big a player China is in the uh, battery and electric vehicle sector, the batteries themselves, from the mining of key metals like lithium, cobalt, and nickel, to the processing of these metals, uh, to the actual uh, finished car?
2: Yeah, thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to, uh, to the discussion. Um, so basically, what's, what's so interesting about what's going on at the moment is – We're seeing that uh, clean energy and especially EVs are becoming a a greater, greater part of uh, geopolitics and national security. And and the reason is that, um, you know, China's had quite a bit of a head start over the West in terms of uh, uh, clean energy technologies such as solar and batteries. And if you look at batteries, uh, where China really dominates is the processing of battery minerals, is the production of battery materials and production of the lithium ion batteries themselves. Uh, So if you look at processing, you know, lithium, it's about 44% of lithium chemicals. But if you look at things like graphite, which is used in batteries, it's, you know, it could be almost 100% uh, is processed uh, in China. And if you look at sort of cathode and anodes, which are uh, materials that go into EV batteries, you know, China is also very, very dominant and produces almost all of the uh, cathodes and, and anodes. Um, and batteries, China produces around 70% of lithium-ion batteries. Uh, so China is really dominant in a lot of these stages. Where it's not dominant is actually mining the raw materials. China's not blessed with a lot of deposits of, of these minerals. Uh, so China has to import raw materials from Australia, uh, from Chile, uh, from, from Africa, from other countries. Um, so in that sense, it's still vulnerable uh, in many ways like it is to imports of oil and gas. Uh, so it's more the other steps in the supply chain where China dominates.
1: So Henry, supply chains are very much on everyone's mind these days, especially, you know, the vulnerabilities, as you say, to supply chains, especially here in the US. Uh, we've experienced obvious disruptions that we felt pretty acutely. Uh, we now see them both as sources of vulnerability, as I said, but also as strategically vital to us. And there are, you know, ways that we can exert pressure on geopolitical rivals, including, of course, China. They've been, they've been weaponized, I think it's fair to say. In yes. fact. Uh, much of what we've done with China vis-a-vis, you know, the repression of Uyghurs uh, has focused on depriving China of, of, of tech inputs related to surveillance through, you know, the extensive entity listing program through BIS and commerce and uh, preventing imports of different goods whose supply chains, you know, run through Xinjiang in an effort to stop forced labor. Uh, but even bigger than that is, of course, what we've done with cutting off sales of advanced semiconductors and yeah. the equipment that's needed to make those. Uh, we've gotten even further now with the Biden administration now having said that it's not just semiconductors it's not just you know uh, advanced integrated circuits it's now green technology and biotechnology that are also uh areas of strategic you know competition where we need to sort of stop China's advance uh it's quite explicitly now said that we 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 need to slow China down. Uh, we're doing through we're doing that uh, with semiconductors. Will we start doing that with EVs and uh, with batteries? What do you think also of this approach? Do you think that it will be a setback for the global energy transition?
2: I think this is the tricky balancing act that the U.S. policymakers are thinking through at the moment, which is clean energy technologies, solar panels, batteries. Yes, they are. They are complicated, but they're they're not like semiconductors. They're not like future of AI, etc. So, uh, you know, what actually is the national security risk of of having Chinese solar panels or, or or China batteries? Obviously, there are things like solar inverters that Huawei makes. Perhaps you know they're not U.S. not so keen on that. Um, but what what really is the risk? And also, if if the U.S. doesn't allow uh, Chinese components, Chinese expertise in you're right, it risks delaying the energy transition and we don't have time, right? This is a, a policy-driven uh, transition. We need to make this energy transition in unprecedented speed. Uh, and the risk is that if you try to cut China off completely, that you delay or increase the cost of this energy transition. And I think the US is trying to think through how to allow Chinese companies to be involved. And also, what is the ownership nature of those companies? Are they state-owned? Are they mixed, mixed ownership, et cetera? But this week we saw a classic example of some of these issues, which is that Ford uh, said it was building a battery plant in in Michigan mm-hmm. uh, and it's going to license technology from CATL. It could have easily been a joint venture, but I think because of political concerns, they have to license the technology. And Michigan got the project because the Virginia governor, uh, it, they were looking at Virginia, but the right. governor of Virginia said, uh, I don't want this project to be a Trojan horse for the CCP, etc., uh, but what it really shows is it's fascinating is that we need chinese expertise to decarbonize to to produce these batteries at the moment because we just haven't uh, got a lot of the manufacturing expertise that they have but yet, at the same time the us as you said doesn't want china involved so this deal sort of shows an awkward sort of compromise i don't quite know you know if it satisfies a lot of us goals but it's necessary because we need to sell many more evs and the us needs to sell many more evs so it's a very difficult balancing act.
1: Indeed, indeed. Uh,
0: Henry, have you followed the uh, new Muta draft legislation in China that might possibly restrict exports of equipment used to manufacture solar panels? It's not a law yet, but it's 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 been in discussion for a number of months, I believe.
2: Yeah, I saw news about that, um, about possibly restricting some parts of the solar supply chain exports. I think... That obviously, uh, you know, could be could be very difficult for the West. I also I, I don't necessarily see it as in China's interest to start restricting exports because it's got a dominant market share. If you look at a lot of the Chinese companies, they want to penetrate markets in in Europe and America. They want to expand globally. It doesn't really seem in China's interest to do this. It would only accelerate the shift that we're seeing, especially in the U.S. now, where the Inflation Reduction Act is putting billions in, in terms of competing with China. So I don't really see the interest in China doing that. But you're right; it is it is a threat that they could hold over the West.
0: Yeah, and it's probably not really in the U.S.'s interest to restrict, uh, you know, using CATL technology for American <laughs> electric cars. So. Anyway, let us move on and talk about lithium. Your book tells the story of the contest between a Chilean mining company called SQM and its former chairman, uh, Julio Ponce Leroux. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Ponce, Ponce? Leroux, I think. Ponce, Ponce He's a pon- Ponce. Ponce <laughs> Ponce Leroux, who was Augusto Pinochet's son-in-law um, and uh, uh, got together with a Chinese company called Tianqi Lithium. Can you give our listeners the broad stroke outline of that contest and uh, tell us where it stands today, uh, and perhaps how important uh, Chile and SQM are to global lithium production.
2: Yeah, it's a really fascinating story. So, as I said at the beginning, China does have some lithium resources, but it's not—they're not of the quality uh, of those overseas. So, what we've really seen is China having to go out to the world to secure raw materials, and and they've done that quite advanced of the of the West, right? So, quite a few years before uh, Western companies really started making deals. And one of the key places that supplied lithium to China was Chile. It started in the late 1990s, actually undercut uh, a lot of other producers because it was so cheap. The lithium in Chile is is extracted using the uh, the sunlight in the Atacama Desert, so it's free energy, right? It's free power, uh, so it's very low CO two and very uh, very cheap as well. Uh, so SQM is is one of the biggest producers in Chile, and it has this controversial history because it came out of the privatizations that happened under Pinochet and Pinochet's son-in-law uh, was for many years, uh, you know, the leader of, of the company. Uh, what's so interesting is a few years ago is this Chinese lithium company, Tianchi Lithium, which has been very entrepreneurial. It, it not only bought a stake in, in the best lithium mine in the world in Australia, but it decided to buy a a, a stake in SQM of, of Chile. And, you know, this was, you know, a few years ago. So it was before a lot of the West has sort of woken up to this issue. And I guess what was so interesting was that, you know, it showed Chile's attitude to Chinese investments. And actually, we've seen a huge amount of Chinese investment in Chile, like the electricity grid, uh, a lot of Chinese investment in Chile's electricity grid, for example. And there's a lot of BYD uh, buses in in Chile. And the Chilean authorities approved this deal, even though is a is a competitor of, of SQM you know so it was kind of a, an interesting deal to go through but it really highlighted china's need and determination to secure lithium resources because put it this way china's building this this mega big battery industry electric vehicle industry but without lithium it's nothing right it's extremely vulnerable uh, to external supplies of raw materials so this is why uh, you saw deals like this and they paid a huge amount of money for a stake that's not a controlling stake uh, they have a, a member of the on the board uh, but it's not a controlling stake. So uh, it was seen at the time as overpaying. Uh, but I think strategically, look, they now own a stake in a big, low-cost, low-carbon lithium producer. So in hindsight, it looks like a pretty good deal.
1: Where where else are they right now? So you said they, they bought a big stake in an Australian lithium producer and in Chile now. Uh, where else around the world are, are Chinese companies investing in, in raw lithium resources?
2: So you've seen a lot of investment going to Argentina, a huge amount of investment going to Argentina. You've seen uh, investment going to Africa. A lot of the lithium projects in Africa being developed now, owned or invested in by Chinese, uh, Zimbabwe, DRC, etc. So we've really seen Chinese companies being very quick-footed and aggressive. And I think one of the really interesting things about the geopolitics is, as I said, Chile and Argentina you know, they're not really that opposed to, to Chinese investment. And, the you know, in a way, uh, China's been quite successful in winning these countries over, um, you know, to their side, if so to put. You know, Argentina signed up to the, the Belt and Road uh, last year. Uh, Chile's uh, a member of Belt and Road. China's their biggest trade partner. Um, and we don't see Chile and Argentina participating in uh, U.S.-led uh, initiatives such as the Mineral Security Partnership, which is an initiative uh, by the US and, and Europe and others. Uh, we don't see Chile and Argentina getting involved. So it's quite interesting geopolitically that these two countries uh, are, are quite open to Chinese investment.
1: Uh, Henry, just now you mentioned in passing the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, you devote a lot of your book to cobalt. I mean, we all think of lithium ion batteries as being primarily lithium, but of course, cobalt, nickel, as you say, graphite, all really important uh, components of it as well. Uh, It seems like an awful choice when it comes to cobalt between working with, on the one hand, this Swiss-based multinational Glencore and its Let us say, highly problematic partner there in the DRC, Dan Gertler, um, who has been sanctioned by the U.S. under the Global Magnitsky Act. And on the other hand, you know, working with Chinese brokers who often buy from these so-called artisanal miners that you do such a good job of talking about in 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 the book, which really means I mean, artisanal miners is a very nice euphemism for, of course, these dangerous small-scale operations that often employ child labor. So, what's a battery company to do? It seems like it's a choice of evils when it comes to the DRC.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's one of the uh, interesting things I wanted to to open people's eyes to, and other books have have also looked at this, which is that as the transition to electric vehicles gained pace, um, people realized, uh, wait a second, you know, DRC produces seventy percent of cobalt. Um, you're you're not gonna have the cv transition w- without the drc and you're exactly right what what automakers and, and others facing a drc is quite uh unenviable choice or, or was an unvi- unenviable choice between cobalt that's mined by hand as you said in mines where they don't have safety equipment there's often deep tunnels there's often you could, can't have children getting involved um, there's obviously regular deaths and, and, and injuries and that cobalt gets sold to Chinese traders and eventually ends up in China. Or you've got these big mining companies such as Glencore, the biggest cobalt producer, such as China Molybdenum is another Hong Kong listed uh, Chinese company. So it's a choice of these two things. And, and what happened initially a few years ago was Amnesty put out a report about the child labor conditions. And I think the auto industry uh, instinctively and initially just wanted nothing to do with, with the DRC and, and try to avoid the country. And, and Tesla signed a deal with Glencore uh, because their mine is sort of behind big fences. It's sort of uh, secured, um, etc. cetera. Uh, but now we've seen a bit of a change where I think auto companies, others, as I saw Microsoft recently, call for more engagement in the DRC and trying to sort of semi-formalize these artisanal mining areas to so provide them some equipment, prevent children going in, etc. But it really is uh it really is a quite a big task, right? There are lots of these people mining, there's lots of different areas. Uh if you fence in one area, they might go to another area. And and what sort of standard are we willing to to take? And I think it sort of brings up a fundamental issue about our engagement with countries like the DRC, which is I don't think we should run away but also we need to accept that it won't be perfect. The solutions won't be perfect, but we need to have some nuance uh, in, in, in saying that, yes, we will buy cobalt from the DRC and we'll support some of these improvements, even though it may not be uh, perfect, but we need to open our eyes to what's happening. And I think before the electric vehicle, if you talk about our smartphones, all of which have cobalt in, et cetera, uh, no one's cared, right? And these supply chains have been invisible, uh, whereas now they're, they're front and center, and people are trying to, trying to improve the situation. Just a final point, which is the the DRC government is also trying to improve the situation. And what they also want is for these guys to get a fairer price. Because at the moment, the Chinese traders, and I, I've seen it myself, they, they weigh uh, the cobalt that, that's given to them, and, and people don't trust the price they're getting. So the DRC government's keen for them to to get a fairer price. So Yes, this is this is all part of the electric vehicle supply chain.
0: And it is an extraordinary illustration of contemporary inequality, isn't it? Because the people who run the companies that make the electric cars and the batteries and the phones are the world's richest people. They're the bajillionaires. And the yep. people uh, mining the cobalt are some of the world's most miserable people right now. Yeah, yeah, that's, ex-
2: yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a stark... Um, Indication of the inequality of our of our supply chains, and I think the problem also for the DRC is it doesn't get a lot of the value add from the cobalt. So as I said, it gets exported to China where it's processed and turned into battery materials. So if you think about where the value is going, uh, China takes a lot of the value of that material. So the DRC wants to build more of a supply chain in the country. You know, it's an interesting country. They've got lots of hydropower. They've got young populations. So has a lot going for it. But we need to engage uh, with the DRC. And I hope we'll see more investment
1: there as well. So Henry, it struck me that one lesson that somebody might take away from your book is that activism actually works. The, the, the NGOs, uh, you mentioned just now the amnesty report, which was really revelatory, uh, shining a light on the abuses of some of these companies. And here I want to focus on the you know, the Chinese companies. Uh, it yeah. actually seems to produce results at the very least you know, they, they recognize that they're going to be punished in the market if they don't improve yes. their practices when it comes to the, the, the mining. Uh, was that one of the lessons that you hoped to, to impart? And, and what would be some of the primary examples from your book of Chinese actors who have been chastened and have cleaned up their act, at least to some extent, after NGOs pushed them really hard?
2: Yeah, I think this is a, a key point, which is that uh, you're right the the, the the size of the markets in in the us and, and europe um we have we have big leverage when it comes to this supply chain and if you if you think about the regulations the eu is uh is drawing up um, around batteries and uh, raw materials this huge leverage uh because you're exactly right after amnesty put out this report uh Huayou cobalt which is a massive chinese company uh was named in the report it really did you know try to respond and and publicly engage and be a bit more open and and I think it was scared and other chinese was, companies were scared about losing out on on the market opportunity and we've seen this in other areas of the supply chain uh too uh, so that's really helped engagement i guess but th- the problem is that you know we also need to say we need to see change on the ground right and we what we need to avoid is just uh greenwashing or, or public relations right we need to see change on the ground and that's why NGOs and others, the work they do is so critically important because they can hopefully go to the ground, uh, check check what's going on, and um, and see how things have changed. And consumers as well. And what we're seeing now is, uh, you know, Tesla going to the DRC. As I said, Microsoft I think recently visited there. We're seeing consumers take more responsibility for visiting and, and checking conditions on the ground. And you're right, that's that's the power that we have um, in the West. And we're seeing this also in the EU with carbon border adjustment, with other policies, mm-hmm. right? Huge leverage mm-hmm. over, over the Chinese supply chain. Uh, just finally, Chinese supply chain is also cleaning up because domestically, as you know, right, Xi Jinping is putting more pressure on cleaning up um, the environment. So they're facing these issues at home as well. Great, great.
0: Cobalt isn't the only problematic metal, even though it's quite abundant. Nickel turns out uh, to be quite hard to extract, and the whole process imposes very high social costs. Can you talk about the problem of nickel, Henry, and what China's done in Indonesia with nickel mining and processing?
2: Yeah, so it's really interesting. So, you know, in my book, I, I hope to give an idea of um, these new countries that are emerging as powerful in this uh, post or this energy transition, right? Um, as we move from fossil fuels to, to clean energy. Uh, it's interesting to see which countries are, are coming up as becoming more influential. And DRC, we we mentioned, um, but Indonesia is is so important now to the energy transition. And I think it's, it's gaining a lot of uh, geopolitical uh, clout, because um, most of the nickel for this decade is going to come from Indonesia. Um, so we can't really, uh, again, transition to EVs without countries like Indonesia. Um, it also happens to be a, a big uh, coal producer and and uh, and relies on coal for its for its power. But what the Chinese have done in Indonesia is is fascinating because they've invested about fifteen billion dollars in building nickel processing in the country. These are big industrial parks with their own ports, with their own hotels, runways, and what they do is take the country's uh, nickel and process it into materials for 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 batteries for electric vehicles as well as for stainless steel and. The reason is is that Indonesia's government a few years ago banned exports of, of raw nickel. So they were saying, if you want our nickel, you've got to come to the country and invest right and, and give us jobs and, 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 and all that. Um, so it was a really interesting example by a developing country of leveraging their resources to build to build, uh, build out supply chain. Um, so what you have now is a huge investment by the Chinese. They've managed to build these plants at ultra fast speed. So a lot of the nickel is going to come from Indonesia, but the downside is uh, the pollution uh, this caused to to local areas, also some of the worker issues uh, you know the, the 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 way they treat um, local workers um, and also the fact that as I say Indonesia relies on coal-fired uh, power for electricity. so you've basically shifted a whole load of industry out of China to Indonesia, but you may have increased the the carbon emissions. And that's so important. So just to give this all in perspective, when you buy your EV, I don't know if you guys have an EV, uh, producing it takes more carbon emissions to produce than an uh, internal combustion engine. So we need to bring down uh, the, the carbon emissions of building the battery. And that's why Indonesia is so problematic, right? Because we need to scale up EVs to such a scale that they make a difference. That, uh, But we can't have all these carbon emissions in the supply chain. Right, right, right.
0: That's one of the favorite talking points of the anti-electric car people in the part of America where I live. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>
1: <laughs> right, but I mean, I, I think just to be clear, that's this is not what Henry's book is arguing no. at all. No no, 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 no. Because it's it's all like <laughs> oh,
2: yeah. room for improvement, right? And, and as soon as yeah. you uh, drive your EV, I mean, not only you cut air pollution, which kills millions um, every year, but uh, the more you drive, if you charge it with clean energy, then you obviously – uh, you're paying back some of the CO2 used to produce it. And it's all about improve, improving, right? So these supply chains are getting better. The grids are getting cleaner. Um, so the direction of travel is is important. Uh,
0: and you have also pointed out to me before, Henry, that uh, the type of EV you buy does also make a difference. If people carry on buying enormous pickup trucks, uh, that's obviously going to be less good for the environment than if you buy a small Nissan LEAF. Uh, yeah
1: may i point out that you are the owner of a large pickup truck Jeremy? <laughs> <laughs>
0: the ex-owner actually <laughs> yeah well, you sold it yeah well this is yeah. this is the interesting
2: thing right when you see uh biden uh sitting in an ev it's always some uh monstrous electric suv or, or truck right whereas i think if you look at china's market um there's many more uh, smaller evs right the, the hongguang mini is is one of the best-selling uh evs so i think uh you know, India as well probably could could use small, will go for smaller EVs. So I think you're right. Uh, the choices the US makes, uh, the choices Europe makes have a huge impact on, on the planet, right? And how many raw materials uh, we need. Uh, if you look at it, uh, if you have a smaller battery pack, you can, uh, you know, you can reduce the forecast lithium deficit, for example. So. Yeah, consumer choice does play, uh, play a powerful role, right? Are we just going to go out and buy the same size vehicles uh, in EVs, or are we going to use it as an opportunity to to think about the whole system?
1: So just get back to these problematic metals for one second. Yeah. I think, interestingly, the, the pioneering work in cobalt and nickel-free battery solutions seems to be coming from China. Yes. Uh, can you talk about what BYD is doing in LFP or lithium yep. iron iron phosphate batteries, and uh, you know what are the shortcomings, uh, and what about sodium ion batteries, which is another potential area? Yeah,
2: yes yeah, so it's it's really interesting. Um, if you if you talk about the problems I've raised in my book, there are there are solutions, and this is what we need to stress all the time: is that innovation um, and, and solutions can can always uh, be found. And we shouldn't be uh, too too downhearted. And right. LFP is one of those uh, is one of those innovations. You know, it's not a new uh, chemistry. It was actually invented in uh, in North America. Um, if you think back to, there was a company called A One Two Three Systems in America. Um, you know, during uh, after the financial crisis, which which listed on the stock market, and there was a lot of excitement. Um, it was trying to produce LFP, but it but it went bankrupt. Uh, hmm. But China really has. Uh, taken this LFP chemistry and and run with it and not only does it produce um, you know over 90 percent of the LFP batteries and and battery materials uh, companies like BYD they've always uh, they've used LFP for a long time and they've managed to engineer it so that you can increase the energy density which means you can increase the range of the the vehicle Um, so just just to say this this chemistry is is safer than uh, the nickel and cobalt batteries it's um, longer cycle life and it's much cheaper and cheap is everything right cost is everything because we need to get electric vehicles down to the to the price of internal combustion vehicles so so china has done a very good job of of producing these cheaper battery chemistries and improving uh the energy that they can um they can store so that's exactly why we get to a situation today where ford uh is is asking catl to uh come can you come to america and uh, teach us how to make these lfp batteries which were actually invented uh, in north america um, <laughs> oh, <my gosh. laughs> so that's that's the situation right so china has total expertise now in producing lfp batteries and lfp uh, battery materials um, and not only that sodium iron as you mentioned is is another technology where china's rapidly moving ahead to uh, commercialize it build up the supply chain uh, because new technologies uh, to solve the climate crisis it's not just a matter of inventing it in the lab you need to build a supply chain um, and this is what china is doing for sodium ion. and sodium iron is great because there's no lithium um, sodium is abundant it's salt basically right and uh right. again we have to see um what improvements can be made to increase the energy density because sodium ion doesn't have a high energy density so it's unlikely to power you driving 500 miles, right? But what can it do? Um, That's the question. That's what we have to see.
0: So speaking of batteries, Henry, you gave a great overview of a company we've already talked about, CATL, which is, I suppose, the most important battery company in the world, the biggest battery company in the world, I think. Uh, Could you talk about that company for the Seneca audience and tell us about its remarkable rise to dominance? Yeah, so
2: I think CATL is is a fascinating story. and it's just a number of these Chinese companies that, as I'm sure you're aware, are, are very entrepreneurial, very fast moving, and also have you know have generated uh, tons of billionaires. Right? If you look at um, the billionaires in China, a lot of them from the green energy sector, uh, and CATL is is right at the top. Um, it's it's an extraordinary story of uh, a company that you know began producing batteries for mobile. Electronics uh, in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands in in southern China, um, BYD also started as making batteries for for mobile electronics, and this was an industry that shifted from Japan uh, to China. At that time, we all know the reasons, right? Lower labor costs, uh, lower environmental standards, etc., um, etc. Et uh, but CATL moved from that beginning. Um, to To producing electric vehicle batteries and, and it got its start um, just at the time when the chinese government was was starting to really subsidize electric vehicle industry so you know two thousand and eleven uh, that sort of time period uh, you know post the financial crisis and and it really could see what was coming, what the Chinese government uh, wanted to do. And uh, it was interesting that, um, you know, BMW in China was one of its first customers that and BMW really, really helped uh, CATL develop its uh, batteries. But it just grew so rapidly, uh, invested so heavily to today where you get a situation where it's almost too big, right? It's uh, <laughs> It supplies uh, so many automotive companies and also a lot of the Chinese uh, startups. And, and what we're now seeing is, interestingly, that it's investing in more uh, Chinese uh, electric vehicle startups. Um, it has a a project with Huawei, um, uh, EV EV project with Huawei, and it also contributed to um, financing uh, this uh, last week of, of Zika, which is a, a brand by Geely. Uh, so CATL is really got its tentacles in in all areas of this industry and it's just so so big right it's uh got a plant in germany in the heart of germans auto industry it's going to build a plant in hungary the biggest uh fdi in hungary's history and as we as i said it's going to build this plant uh with ford as well in in michigan so you've ended up in a situation where the entire auto industry is in a lot of ways reliant on this chinese company
0: CATL perhaps is the most famous or perhaps most dominant, but uh, Chinese-owned companies generally have come to dominate uh, just about the mining uh, of, of the metals needed, but certainly the downstream processing and production of key metals and of the batteries themselves, how much of that is due to deliberate policies of the Chinese state, and how much is basically the enterprises and the entrepreneurs themselves, which happen to be Chinese, and is the, that even a useful distinction
2: I think a lot of it is to do with the entrepreneurs the the, the people themselves. I think um, you know the idea that there 's you know somehow this like amazing uh, vision, and they just push a button and, and it all happens. Um, yes, the the policy direction was clear, and and the subsidies, uh, you know, were there to to stimulate the market. But but really, it's been a lot of um, entrepreneurs that have gone out and, and expanded uh, expanded rapidly and, and 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 being quite brave, right, and quite gutsy. As I said earlier, you know, Tianqi Lithium uh, buying this Australian lithium mine, investing in Chile, uh, Huayo Cobalt. Uh, you know, Huayo Cobalt just went to the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. You know, just went there um, to to try and uh, secure cobalt. Uh, CAtl, as we've talked about, but there's loads of others who've, uh, you know, been quite entrepreneurial, moved really fast, and and managed to, I guess, get get lots of financing to to expand capacity. And, and if you look at clean energy more generally, I mean the reason the cost of solar's come down, the reason the cost of batteries have come down is because China has invested so much in in capacity, right? And expanding capacity. Uh now there are some downsides to that, right? You can get over capacity. And obviously we saw in solar, uh, it was uh, quite a brutal shakeout with a lot of companies going uh bankrupt. And the EV industry in China is is now super competitive. Um I think there's gonna be at least 100 uh new electric vehicle models this year are uh, being launched um so it is super competitive um but but what what i think is um the policy has been clear you know we're seeing that in the us now with the inflation reduction act but obviously people worry it could change if administrations change right whereas i think china the policy has been clear the subsidies have been clear and and the financing has has got behind uh, got behind the industry right we're seeing uh, we've seen a lot of big financings have been done. The capital's got behind the industry.
0: So, I mean, if I was to summarize that answer, I would say you, you, your your point of view is that it is the entrepreneurs and the enterprises that have really pushed China ahead, but they've done so with the uh, support, financial and otherwise, of, of the government.
2: I think, yeah, it's an interesting point because we're seeing with the Inflation Reduction Act in the US very much the same philosophy, which is you set out a clear policy, you provide... You know, lots of generous subsidies, but the government dollars can't do it all, right? You need the private sector to to go in and and realize the policy direction to be to be catalyzed by by government investment and to jump on the bandwagon, right? And that's that's what happened in China. Really, it's interesting because uh, you know the U.S. and other and Europe as well. They're now looking at, to learn a lot about industrial policy, right? And uh, industrial policy is uh, in vogue at the moment, so. Um, but, but the interesting thing, I think, as I said about China, is not just a state-directed, uh, state-owned thing. It's been quite um, entrepreneurial and a lot of private um, entrepreneurs. I think what we're, what we're seeing, though, is um, there are companies which have mixed ownership. You know, this is a, a thing that's emerged in, in China, right, where you may have a local SOE owning a stake in, in the company. Um, so it's not completely state-owned, but it has some... Uh, state backing, or, you know, backing by state funds, um, etc. So yes, the state's not completely absent. um, But uh, you have seen a lot of private capital
1: as well. Henry, just now you talked about how the Europeans and the Americans are looking to learn about industrial policy. But in the later chapters of your book, you uh, talk about how the Europeans have made pretty considerable progress toward creating their own domestic battery industry. Uh, What Lessons should we be learning from them? Uh, what what should the US be looking at? Uh, you know, what have they done right, and uh, what could we pick up on?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So, I think now the Europeans are, are looking at the US and thinking, you know, holy shit, we need to um, to step up a gear. But you are right; uh, we did see an example in Europe, a company called Northvolt, I write about in in Sweden, right. where you know it's a really interesting story where, from nothing, uh, they created a a battery company to to challenge um, Asia's dominance, to challenge China's uh, dominance. And I think a lot of the lessons we saw from that were uh, they, they did get um, you know government support, uh, European Investment Bank, um, others like that supporting it, but they also had good engagement from customers and big car companies like Volkswagen, um, et cetera. So they had a lot of support from all the people that mattered. Um, and I think um, for sure the European... Um, the European help they got was 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 critically um, important. Everyone sort of got behind them and was quite unified in in supporting them. But you know, it's it's still quite early days because they've only you know they only started production. I think it was last year, so we still have to see how it's going to develop. But I think Europe was just so keen to have its own battery producer that it had to succeed. Uh, but interestingly, UK was also keen, and we've seen a failure. A company called Britishvolt uh, went bankrupt. Uh, recently Uh, so a lot of people are are looking at the lessons from that um, and what happened with with Northvolt and I think one of the key reasons is uh, getting big customers uh, on board right to support to support your industry and this is what CATL did with BMW right getting getting your clients on on board early um, as well as government policy is is really important
0: yeah
1: yeah yeah absolutely
2: Henry,
0: we've touched on this uh, a little already, but uh, let me ask it in, in one explicit question. What should a consumer think about when they think about electric cars? If you want to be an ethical user of motorized transport, and perhaps everyone should just ride bicycles, but if you want to yeah. use motorized transport, what should you
2: think you know, about? It's, uh, you should think good things, right? I think EVs are great. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I have an EV. Um I think it's you know what's so important when you when you get one is uh, to realize it's a better product. I think you know people used to think we had to sacrifice something to uh, to decarbonize and I think what's interesting is it is actually a better product. It it drives much better, accelerates much better uh and, and supply chain issues I think uh for the consumer uh, should be you know do do we need to buy um electric SUVs, um you know big big electric pickups etc. Uh, but also, you know, you could um, you could look at where the companies are, are sourcing their the batteries and materials, uh, how much information uh, they give. Uh, you can look at whether they are transparent about the carbon emissions of of producing their their vehicle. Um, you know, we've seen we've seen companies being some companies be be quite transparent uh, about it, like Polestar, uh, for example. Um, so those are all things to to look at, right? And obviously cost is going to matter a lot right and and i think the interesting thing to see about about china you know china's exporting more electric vehicles overseas uh, than than ever before um, and i think it surpassed germany in terms of total auto exports uh, last year so what we have to see now in the west is what's the western consumer going to feel towards chinese brand evs and uh, i was speaking to someone who's done some surveys and it seems that western consumers uh, are quite happy to to buy chinese evs uh are lower cost etc they don't necessarily think about the uh the brand connotations but obviously that could change as the political situation changes but in europe we're going to see really soon how how consumers feel about chinese evs um and, and to your question um they should also ask questions about where where the battery comes from and materials come from you know we need to uh need to keep up on the transparency um and we need to uh yeah be aware of greenwashing as well
1: lfp baby all the way yeah that's what i'm doing yeah yeah (laughs) so jeremy mentioned just sort of flippantly but uh i think he's right you know that maybe we should all ride bicycles we we ran an op-ed recently from debbie seligson uh that argues i think very very convincingly that For much of the developing world, it's not electric cars that are going to make the most difference in the energy transition, but rather the combination of electrified subways and electric two-wheelers, especially, you know, for that last mile. Um, I mean, implicit in her argument is that we in the developed world, in the global north, we tend to focus too much on four-wheeled vehicles, and, you know, we are ignoring a huge space that China will inevitably rush in to fill, uh, what do you think of the opportunity in electric two-wheelers, and whether the U.S. or Europe should, you know, contest that space in some way?
2: Yeah, so it's a really good point. I would like to read that um, op-ed. In India, the opportunity is huge, right? And we're seeing um, we're seeing uh, some pretty um, rosy forecasts. By there's a company called Ola Electric, which one of the uh, companies in India producing electric uh, two-wheelers um i think the the ceo said the other day that all he thinks all uh, uh two three wheelers in india could be electric by 2025 i think or within the next few years so there's huge potential in india to electrify two three wheelers obviously uh, southeast asia other countries as well uh, so i think it's yeah when we think of electrifying transport we got to think of 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 everything right and uh, not just cars uh yeah scooters boats other things one of the interesting things about the energy transition is the multitude of applications and and probably the multitude of solutions right it might not be batteries for everything it might be uh, hydrogen for for trucking um etc but i think it's um it, it's a really good point that uh we think a lot in the in the in the west about yeah four-wheel cars whereas um it's a, it's a different situation um elsewhere but of course, these are much smaller batteries, so it's uh, it's it's much better from a raw material point of view. Uh, but still, the batteries need to be produced. Uh, we need to see investment um, in this sector. And I think what we're seeing in India is the government wants to stimulate domestic battery production. Uh, but at the moment, it's Chinese batteries that are being used in India.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Henry Shatterson, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. And uh, once again, the book is called "Vault Rush, The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green. It is just a terrific read. Pick up a copy today. I, I can't recommend it more highly. It's really readable, full of great anecdotes. There's you know political drama in there. There's just all sorts of crazy characters uh, and some reporting from all over the world. I mean, Henry, it was an amazing book. Thank you. Uh, congratulations on it. I know that it's gotten quite a bit of critical acclaim, and it's all very well-deserved. Um, Let's move on now to recommendations. But first, uh, Jeremy, tell us what the listeners can do to support the work that we do here at the Seneca Podcast.
0: Absolutely. So Seneca remains free, but if you subscribe uh, to Access, um, you get uh, an early ad-free version of the podcast every Monday. Um, And you also get a daily newsletter that rounds up all the most important news from China every weekday and access to all of the content on our website
1: yeah so uh I think we're running a special still right now. It's just a dollar to uh become an access member for your first month, and so uh you know what do you have to lose it's you yeah, check it out it's it's fantastic and you know jeremy you you always put the uh free Monday podcast or the ad free Monday podcast first, but really it's the newsletter that is the great value here, right. Well, yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you work very hard on that thing, I know. I mean, I always see you just, you know, working up until the end of the day. So, fantastic. All right, uh, let's go go on to recommendations now. Jeremy, you always start. What do you have for us?
0: Um, I just, uh, I guess, especially aimed at American readers uh, who might like or know the New York re- Review of Books, it had a... Uh, a child in London called the London Review of Books, uh, which I, I believe is now independent. And I started reading it, and somehow it's much better than the New York Review <laughs> of Books. <laughs> I am recommending the London Review of Books. <laughs>
1: no, it's great. I mean, I, I I didn't know that the two had ever been in, in a relationship or that there was sort of a, you know, a father. It's family. complicated. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently it's complicated. Great, great, great um henry what do you have for us
2: yeah so um you know i've been reading um i'm sure you sure you know about the book uh, the impossible city a hong kong memoir by by yeah, karen yeah. Cheng, uh, which i find is quite nostalgic because i actually um spent a lot of my my younger years in in hong kong so uh it's, it's quite nostalgic for me reading certain certain parts of that book but yeah i recommend that
1: great the nice. impossible city uh I want to recommend the newsletter Tracking the People's Daily uh from the amazing Manoj Kowal Romani who was a guest on the show about a year ago uh talking about India and China in the Ukraine war dilemma great guy uh he publishes this newsletter that just goes through and translates everything of Yeah it's super
2: useful super useful I really like it Oh my
1: god it's yeah it's so good and and it's it's yeah, I it saves me so much headache <laughs> If you're like me and you don't really you know, derive a lot of enjoyment from reading turgid party prose, uh, no, I mean, seriously, it, it's it's a fantastic service that he's doing. Uh, and you know, it's increasingly important for us to understand what um, the, the Chinese leadership is thinking. So, uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend you sign up for that newsletter. It's called Tracking the People's Daily. All right, Jeremy. Hey, thanks so much, man. It was good to see yeah. you. Yeah. Good. And thank and you so much, Henry. It was great
2: to see you again. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of The Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile... Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at the China Proj. And be sure to check out all the shows in the Sinica Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care. Hey.